Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Podcast Playground. Hooray! On the special L.A. edition of the Take It A Walk series, I'm on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, and I'm thrilled to be taking a walk with an iconic photographer of our time. A man has had the bird's eye view of a who's who of rock stars. Name a classic artist, he's probably photographed them. His work is represented by the Morrison Hotel Gallery. His name is Henry Diltz. I can't wait to hear what this rockin' tour has to say. Let's take a walk with Henry Diltz. Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Well, Henry Diltz, it's so great to be with you here at Studio City, uh, taking a walk. Yes, down crowded Ventura Boulevard. I know it's got a great energy, though. There's so much. Yeah. There's so much going on here. It's a vibrant spot. Oh, there goes the school bus. Yeah, there's a school <laughs> bus. As long as there's no <laughs> sirens going by. All right. You know, but um, Henry, it's an honor, really, to meet you. And I really look at all your work, and I'm in awe. Of, uh, of what you've had a bird's eye view for. Yeah. Um, like so many amazing pieces of work, but let's go to the beginning with you as a musician. And tell me, tell me how the uh, modern folk quartet became a band. Yes, okay, it was the folk music days, you know, the 59, 60, 61, and I had just been to college in, in, in Germany, an American college in Munich, Germany. And I was, and I transferred to the University of Hawaii to study psychology. But I also wanted to play the banjo, so I bought a banjo and went to Hawaii, studied psychology for a few years and philosophy. I ended up singing in a little coffee house every night called the Green Sleeves Coffee House, and um, you know we 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 would sing folk songs. Different people would come in and play the guitar. We put a group together, a harmony group, and we came to, to California to seek our fortune, and we did well right away. We, we were very well rehearsed for several years in Hawaii, and no one had heard of us here in L.A. So when we went to the Troubadour Club for their Hoot Nanny Night, which was their open, which was their open mic night, uh, we got up there, and when we hit the first chord in this song, the Ox Driver, the whole audience stood up clapping, and it was scary, you know, like, what is happening? <laughs> because we had this four-part harmony, you know, and there weren't, there weren't many four-part harmony groups, mostly three-part, you know, or two-part. And so that kind of sealed our, our fortune for a few years. We signed up with Warner Brothers Records. We started touring folk, folk tours around the country and being on shows and stuff. And we did that for four or five years. During that time, I met all of these fellow musicians that were, you know, fellow folk singers. I mean, I met Stephen Stills in New York. He used to come down to the Village Gate and sit on the edge of the stage and listen to our, our harmony, you know. 
I met David Crosby on tour in Florida. Uh, I just, you know, the mamas and papas were real good friends of mine. They were all people that we knew from backstage, you know, and from, from, from meeting on the road and hanging out at the Troubadour. And then one day on one of our tours, we went in a second-hand store, and, and, and the, the guy in front of me, Cyrus Fariar, walked in and there was a table full of used cameras. And he just reached down and grabbed one and said, oh, a camera, I'll have one, you know. I was looking for one, he said, so I'm going to buy that. And I was right behind him, and I just thought without, I didn't think, without even thinking, I just reached down and said, yeah, hey, me too. Just, it was an impulse, you know. Well, this was like a $20 camera, right? $20 used camera, a little used. It was a Japanese camera. I remember that instead of just the folding open, the whole back came off, and then you put the film in. I managed, so then Cyrus said, when we got back in our vehicle, he said, pull into the next drugstore and I'll buy film. And he handed, the three of us bought cameras. He handed us each a yellow box. And I said, well, Cyrus, how do you set these numbers on the camera? He said, well, look on the box, the Kodak film box. It says sunlight, 250 at eight. I said, oh, okay, 250 at eight, and let's go outside. And she, so for, a, for about a month, we took a lot of pictures on the road, got back to California, developed the film, and I was surprised and delighted to see that they were all these little square transparencies. Oh, you can hold it up. Look at it. And, and I said, well, let's have a slideshow then. And that was the whole thing that started it, because because if, if, if it had been a black and white proof sheet, uh, wait, I want to take this picture here. Yeah. If it had been a black and white proof sheet, I wouldn't have been so interested, you know? I wouldn't have... Um... Sorry. It's okay. And he's taking a picture. Yeah. A true photographer. That, that window, that round window, that's such a great... Well, I love I love that you stop and take a picture. And now uh, I'm going to tell you who this reminds me of. Hint, my wife. In a second, oh, because yeah. my wife's a photographer, and we will be walking and talking, Henry, and she yeah. has to stop and take a picture. Exactly. You see it, you got to take it. You I, know. I think that's yeah. fact. Do you still have the original camera? It might be in the back of one of my several garages. I'm not really sure. You know, <laughs> um, but. But the thing was, um, we had this slideshow, and what really, the moment that it bit me was when I saw the first slide on the wall, in the dark, all of my hippie friends watching, and this huge eight-foot picture of a great moment on the road with us where the, the, the bass player blew his cardboard bass case up with M80s in the desert and it shot up in the air and he's running away in the background and there was that picture on the wall to share with all our friends. I said, this is magic. I mean, it's like we're right back there, you know? Right, right. Uh, that was the moment you were hooked? Yeah. I just said, man, I got to take more pictures so we can have more of these slideshows. You know, it was so much fun. And, uh, and you know, they were my friends. It was a great audience. Was there any... Um, um extracurricular stimulants that were part of that time? Oh. Well, we all smoked God's herb. You know, I mean, in the 60s, 70s, and as I often say, how do you think all that music came out of Laurel Canyon? That's you know, right. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it's not, it's not a drug. As Ray Manzarek from The Doors said, it's not a drug, it's a sacrament. <laughs> but, you know, smoking a little bit of grass... I now call it God's herb because it is. It's a flower God put here. That's right. And it keeps children from having, you know, convulsions. Uh, it actually keeps my hand steady. I have a little tiny tremor when I sign photos. If I have a, a few little hits of a, of a joint, my hand settles down. I there can sign. Yeah. Oh, it's a great thing. I don't know how it got such a bad name. Oh, uh, well, but you know, things have changed. Yes. You know, musicians love to smoke it because... Uh, it it kind of turns off the monkey tapes in your mind, yeah. and it makes you in the moment, like smell the roses. So you sit there, you, you have a little smoke, and then immediately you want to pick up your instrument and you want to start playing, making music. Yeah, um, it's just it's just a really wonderful thing that makes you makes you happy, make engages your mind. I mean, it makes life better. So anyway, that's that's but, the but, end of but that that's, advertisement. No, that's, that's perfect. And, well, yeah. But did you ever think in your lifetime, by the way, that you would see the legalization of cannabis? I mean, 
I don't know, Mickey Dolan used to say, you know, if they ever legalize this stuff, it'll ruin it. Because we do it together as a sort of brotherhood, you know, right. secretly and illegally. Right. And we all break the law together. Yeah. That's, some, that's kind of interesting uh, idea. You know, uh, <laughs> but did you now? So when you realized you were captivated by photography, is that when you kind of segued out of uh, music, meaning as a musician? Uh, well, no. I, you know, I, for a while there, I was a musician and a photographer. I wasn't a photographer. I was just a musician that picked up a camera and and loved. I've, I've always, I've always loved people. You know, I'm very interested in people. In fact, when I went to to college in Germany and Hawaii, I majored in psychology, which only meant that that too. I was interested in who, what is this? Who who are we? What are we doing? What are we? I'm very interested in 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 you know the being here on this planet and what what that means. Well, so, what's so cool too about walking here mm-hmm. in places like this is the the people watching too. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, just right. a fabulous thing to just see yeah. people engage. I always right. try yeah. to wonder when I walk by somebody, I'm like, well, what are they thinking about? You know, what's on their mind? You know, are they having a good day? Are they having a lousy day? Oh, yeah. You know? Sometimes at the airport, I will sit, if you have to wait an hour for a flight, I'll sit there and watch hundreds and hundreds of people walk by. And one day I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, you know how big your life is. You're the center of a life. You have a past, you have a history, hopes, dreams, your connection with people, all of that is repeated in every single person. In other words, every single person walking by is the center of a whole universe, their own private universe. And it's kind of awesome, because you see all these nameless people, but you think each one is this incredible sort of galaxy, you know? There's a story to tell. So there is that, you know? But back to that morning when when we, we were leaving the University of Michigan, and we stopped in the secondhand store, and of course we had smoked a little, a little morning toke, like sure. like every musician right. does. You exactly. know, it's kind of just kind of like a way of life. Yep. Uh, and so you know, being a little high, it was like not even high, just normal. It just kind of wakes you up, you <laughs> right. know. So when I saw Cyrus grab a camera, I just said, "Yeah, what the heck? Yeah, yeah you know, me too." Wow. If I'd have been walking in there with a, a, a load of stuff on my mind, I wouldn't have noticed, right? And just think, yeah. right? Yeah. Think what you would have, what you would have missed. So yeah. where yeah. after that first initial, like, look at what you did, yeah, and, and amazement. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the next moment that you realized that you were further hooked? Was it a particular okay. album no. cover? No, no. First of all, after that night, I swore I would take more photos for more slideshows. Now, I wasn't—I hadn't photographed any any groups or music. I, I mean, so the next couple of weeks, I was hanging out with all my friends. That's what we did in LA. We hung out every day. And by the way, that's what musicians do—they hang out. We don't have a nine to five, you know. And almost everything we do with our fellow musicians in a club or you know wherever it is, um, and I, I just started photographing everything, everybody I saw in the next two weeks, so I could get more pictures to show. And they were the guys in my group, their girlfriends, friends of friends, you know, whatever it was, uh, wherever I was, I would just, I was turned on to collecting images that would entertain my friends. Okay. That's what it was. And it was framing. The added the added fun part is framing. You know, you see something and there's several ways you could frame it. You could get in close, you could get the wide shot, you could go vertical, horizontal. And there's something, you know, kind of internally artistic about that. It's feeling though. It's just feeling. So that kind of seized me, you know? It's just Now when you said the slideshow, mm-hmm. I seem to recall at um the Fillmore East when I saw uh, my first concert there which was the Jefferson Airplane and Joe Cocker actually but I seem to remember that at the shows then there would be um, almost like slideshows that were being uh, shown at concerts am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah sometimes they'll show them behind you yeah. know Some, and it used to be light shows all right. colored lights and Joshua stuff. Light yeah, the, the, you know stuff. swirling psychedelic yeah. lights yeah. I mean I've done Plenty of slideshows for for singers that want up something on the back, you know, in the background. Yeah. My friend John Stewart from the Kingston Trio, in his solo career, 
did these great songs about people, Midwest, you know, people in America. And so we put together a slideshow of farmers and just just people that I had. And he had that behind him while he was singing. Now, that was really fun, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So, so we did. When I say a slideshow, it means I put a carousel together of 80 slides, yep. and we go into a friend's living room and have 20 or 30 friends over. Are you still doing slideshows for friends? I do now. I do it on the road, and it's digital. You okay. know, it's through a through an iPad and a digital projector. Okay, but as and now some... I'm up on stage talking, talking about, about the about pictures it. to a whole audience. No, it's not my karmic group of friends. I would say more than half of them have already gone to the other side <laughs> anyway. You know? so. Now, how does a photographer who started the way you started think of digital photography today? Well, in 05, I was saying, I will never be a digital guy. I'm a film guy through and through. And then I picked up, my friend had a Canon with the big telephoto lens, and I just picked it up and looked through it, and I said, oh my God. It's, it's focusing itself, and it's setting its own light reading. I mean, here I was using a, a spot meter. I have to hold this thing up to my eyeball and, and read somebody's face and then set the numbers on the camera and do all that. This was automatic. I said, my God. It's like you don't even have to be there. You could just send the camera. And uh, So, so you, I, were, could, you were then, like, you bought it then, right? Yeah, I said the self-focus thing was great because, you know, if you're in a hurry and you don't get it really sharp and then later you think, damn it, you know, yeah. I can't use that. It's yeah. not sharp enough. I said, well, that'll be a solution to that. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I was immediately interested in it. And the, the thing that I really love about digital photography is you can keep all the photos you ever take and you can give them all away at the same time. In the old days, when I would shoot slides for an album cover, they would have to go to the art director or the record company. And nine times out of ten, you'd never get them back. They'd get lost somewhere at the right? printing company. Really? or the, You know, nobody cared once they had the cover. So many of my album covers, I don't have the original pictures. Were they, if they were digital, I would. Right. Because you keep them all and you give digital copies. Like I'm saying, you know, I would shoot a group, and after that next day, bring the film to the camera store, pick it up a day later, then then you know, put stamp my name on it, sort it all out, you know, put it in a plastic sheets, and give it to the, the manager or the art director, whoever it was. That would take a good part of a week. Today, you shoot, you go home, you put it on your computer, you print. Well, and. I mean, a few years ago, you'd print a CD. Now, I guess it's a thumb drive, or you just email it to the, to right. the record company, the manager, the agency, each guy in the group. Everybody can get everything. Yeah. And I get to keep it all as well. That, right. to me, is magic. Well, and how do you feel about the fact that albums have made such a resurgence? Well, I think it's great. The, the old album cover was a great art form, the, you know, the 12-inch square. That was a great art form, and I worked with a terrific art director, Gary Burden. Most of the covers I did were with Gary Burden. We were a little team, um, and we would we would always Gary's idea. He was like the like the scout leader, you know, the scout master, because he would plan the trip. He would plan what to do. We're going to go. What he wanted to do was get the group out of town, away from their girlfriends and their managers and their phones. We didn't have cell phones. And so in the early 70s, like we went out to the, to the desert with the Eagles to do their first album cover. So we would plan an adventure that would get these guys out just with us. Right. So the, and then Gary would say, just shoot everything that happens. Film's the cheapest part. Wow. <laughs> he, that was the same. Which... I did anyway. I just shot everything I saw. I mean, I'm just busy framing and clicking. And by the way, I am a passive photographer. I am not an in-your-face guy. That would never work, you know, in the music business. The reason I was able to be in the lives of all these people and be on the road with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and the Eagles, and Bad Company, and the Monkees, David Cassidy, all over the world... It's because I wasn't a pain in the ass, you know? Yep. I was quiet. I yep. was respectful. Yep. Um, you know, I'm not jumping in there in front of everybody saying, okay, you know, look over here. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. like, I'm the photographer. I'm here to take your picture. Like, you stand over there. I mean, oh, God, I hate that, you know? No, go like back to, to that. I'm sorry. No, I, I just like to just quietly observe, observe and watch and document. I'm kind of doing it 
internally. It's my own thing I'm doing. I'm not thinking, oh boy, I'll get this picture in front of the world. No, I mean, I took all for me. It was all my fun framing, watching people, you know. Yeah. Uh, 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 and of course, of course, I knew they were great musicians and I loved, loved the music too. It was a way to get me, to keep me into that world. You know? So go back to that first Eagles session that you were talking yeah. about out there. In the I would imagine those uh, young gentlemen at that time, they were like probably like choir boys in that era, right? <laughs> yeah, no. Look, look, of course. I mean, we left the Troubadour at 2 in the morning and drove out to Joshua Tree, got there at 5 in the morning in the dark, ate peyote buttons, smoked a joint, climbed a mountain and spent the day laughing on top of this mountain, you know, with a, a teapot of bubbling peyote buttons on the fire. And, oh, yeah, we, we just, we had the great, that's what you do in the desert, you know, you let go, you let loose. What was Glenn Fry's comment about your, your photography, something Oh, he funny? said, he said, this, he said, this isn't photography, this is evidence. <laughs> yeah, because I'm just shooting everything that happened. And, you know, people aren't posing for me. It's way, you know, that's, you know, that's, we're over that, you know, in five minutes. You yeah. know, we're all just doing what we do, and I am too. And then I just turn around and snap a couple of pictures. I mean, you know. But you so. don't realize in that moment, I'm sure, that it's a moment, right? I mm -hmm. mean, when you're in that moment, go back in time, mm -hmm. uh, you don't realize how special that moment is, do you? No, right. no. It's just, it's just the moment, you know. It's what's going on. Yeah. I mean, life is an adventure, you know. Uh, it really is an adventure every day. But these particular days were huge adventures because we'd plan them out and go somewhere, go to an Indian reservation or go up to Big Sur, to, you know, and, and, and just bring a group along and, and get them away from their everyday stuff, you right. know. Yeah. They might they, they, they say, oh, I have to go pick my girlfriend up. I can't shoot anymore, you know. No, no, we're out there for the day and the yep. night and there's no interruptions. Yep. So it's an that, organic adventure thing. You yeah. Know? And, and it's, I always enjoy it. I'm participating in it, but I never stop to think, well, boy, now where will this fit in, you know, know. in the timeline of my life? Right. I mean, who thinks that? No, right? nobody. Yeah. So that first Crosby, Stills, Nash session, mm -hmm. uh, how did all that come together in that particular uh, iconic mm. album cover? Mm. Uh, Gary Burden, my graphic artist partner, and myself both knew these three guys. I had known Stephen. That was 69. I met him in 63 in New York. You know, I knew Crosby for years. I knew all these guys before the birds and the Buffalo Springfield, you know, before. So, musicians, I say, it's like a club. We all know each other, especially in L.A. We all hang out at the Troubadour. Everybody knew what was what was going on. We knew they were recording an album together, you know? And, uh, and they needed pictures. Nobody had taken any pictures of them, even to announce that they're singing together. So Gary and I said, let's, let's go. Come on, we're getting this old Ford station wagon, 50-something Ford station wagon, and drive around L.A. looking for little spots to take interesting photos. And we found that little house. Graham had seen that house sometime earlier and said, I know there's this great little house around here. And we found it and there was a couch in front of it. They sat there. We took a bunch of pictures. And Gary said the other thing that he said to me. First thing was just shoot everything that happens. Film the cheapest part. Second thing he always said to me was back up. Back up. Get the whole house. <laughs> That's, so I'm, they sit on the couch. I'm right up close to them getting the couch from end to end in a horizontal frame, you know. Yep. And But then Gary saw something, and we were just shooting publicity photos, not an album cover. But Gary saw that that whole house was interesting, and he said, back up, back up. I backed up across the street, and then I could see them on the couch at the bottom and the whole house around them. Um, and so that's how that happened. The story with that is that they hadn't even named themselves yet, so when they sat on the couch, randomly, it happened to be Nash, Hills, and Crosby. And then we looked at that in a slideshow a few days later and said, boy, someone said that would be a great album cover, but we're in the wrong order because now we just decided to be Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That rolls off the tongue, right? Uh, so I said, 
No problem. Let's just go back there. How, how long would it take for you to jump on the couch in the right order? I'll go click, click, click. We'll have the same shot in the right order. And so we did. A few days later, got in Gary's Ford station wagon, drove back, and the house wasn't there. <laughs> it was an empty lot. <laughs> and and uh, as Graham says, it was a... It was a Hey, it was a bunch of sticks in the back of the lot. They bulldozed the whole thing down and made a parking lot out of it. Right around the time that Joni's song, Paved Paradise, put up a parking lot. Yes. And I said, my God, that is exactly right. Wow. So, so they're, they're sitting in the wrong order and on that cover. That's but that, unbelievable. You know, and I'll tell you an interesting thing about that. Gary was an architect. He'd been fixing up Mama Cass's house. Let me turn off myself. He'd been fixing up Mama Cass's house, and she said, Gary, I want you to... They got to be good friends, you know, probably smoking a little and yeah. laughing. And yeah. She said, I want, why don't you do my first album cover, doing a solo album? And you, he said, well, Cass, I, I'm not a graphic artist. I'm an architect. And she said, well, you make a blueprint, you do an album cover, what's the difference? Right? right. So he said, okay, I'll try it. And he... A few days later, saw me at a, a love-in on a Sunday in a park, which was just a get-together of hippies, and um, said, hey, you're a photographer. You want to help me do this? And I said, well, I know Mama Cass real well, yeah. So that's how we started working together, Gary and I. That's so cool. How did you first meet Jody through CSN? I probably saw her play at the Troubadour one night, you know. And then I met her uh, with Graham Nash. I met her up at Mama Cass's house. I'd see her around town. You know, we yeah. all saw each other. Yeah. What was it like to photograph Joni? Well, she's very beautiful and very smart, you know? So it's always an interesting conversation, which you don't get in the picture. She always says really, you know, wildly deep thoughts, you know, about mankind and, you know... We're the most destructive generation. Where are the whales? Where are the butterflies? You know, well, you know, and thank God for Buddhism. And, uh, you know, talks about the original sin, you know, and you're like, oh, my God. This is like a history class, you know, right. really. Right. Every time I've ever gone over to our house to talk to her, I've wished I had either a tape recorder or, or, or a darn video crew. Right. But then it wouldn't have been the same. We right. wouldn't have talked quietly about all yeah. this stuff, you know. Yeah. So she's a marvelous lady. Very, you know, I, I, I often, I do slideshows around the country and talk to audiences. I show them the pictures and tell them the stories, basically. And um, I always say, you know, folks, the, all of these people in these pictures, the reason they're so well-known and beloved is they're amazing people. Yep. You know, they are a little bit a cut above you know, the ordinary person. Yes. They're clever. I mean, good Lord, James Taylor, you know, Jackson Brown. I mean, Jimmy Webb, he's one of my favorite composers. I mean, but they're all amazing that they could... Well, the thing is, they're songwriters. Now, here's my little rap about that, because, because years ago, there were songwriters and singers. Like, Frank Sinatra never wrote any songs. Elvis Presley never wrote any songs. They sang the songs that songwriters wrote. Yep. And then a combination of the Beatles playing Ed Sullivan and all the folk groups made sure they... We, we were on the road up in New England. We pulled into a motel early to watch Ed Sullivan. We knew the Beatles would be on. We heard about them, knew they were some fantastic thing, but never really knew much about them. And we saw them wagging their heads and singing, She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, wow, that is so joyful. And look, they have an electric bass. We had a stand-up bass. Yep. We went out the next week and got an electric bass and electrified our guitars. And we said, what are we singing about the ox driver for? We could be singing, you know. So that happened. And also, um, Bob Dylan wrote a song for Woody Guthrie, right? Yep. Kind of a talking thing yep. about Woody Guthrie. And so that was the beginning, sort of, of singers actually writing their own songs, their own thoughts. Yep. So now when you can hear Joni Mitchell sing about her, you know, her love for somebody or something, you know, yeah. oh my God, her observations are so oh. amazing, you know. She's striking. Yeah. In, in so you words. get to, it's yeah. the fruits of her mind and her feeling and all of that, it comes out, you know. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned earlier before about how, how, how huge music is in our lives, you know. 
Yeah. And I say, yeah, so is, it, is it 20%? Is it 50%? I heard a lady once said, for me, it's 100%, because I don't do anything without music on. So, I'd buy but, you that. know, we, we are a frequency. You know, we are millions of, of, of cells. We are, we are electrons spinning around. We are made up of that, our bodies, you know, and, yeah. and, and we're, we're, we're a frequency. And so is music is a frequency. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Cyrus and our group, when we would sing folk concerts, he, he would often, he would say, or he told me once anyway, he said, you know, when we sing to an audience, the sound is coming out of our mouths and going straight into their ears. It's a one-to-one connection of that musical frequency. I mean, the same thing happened when you put a record on, but it's, you know, it's coming through, but you're getting that frequency. Um, and that's why it's so huge, I guess. It just stimulates our mind and our brain and the, the, our memory, you know, yeah. from the first time you heard it. Yes, yes, so, so many things. Yeah. I have to ask you, though, there's a couple of movies that, as you, we were talking about uh, folk music and everything, mm. I wanted to see what you thought of these movies just for their perspective. One was uh, uh, The Mighty Wind, you know, the... Uh, uh, mockumentary right. uh, done by Christopher Guest. I love that movie, sure. I mean, With your it's friend so- Ed Begley Jr., who we yes, just saw. Yes, he was in that. Yeah, I've seen that a few times. I love that. Right. Uh, it's kind of the machinations of it, or kind of what it was like. You don't get into everybody's head, you know, yeah. really. So, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. It, is, it is a mockumentary. The other one is uh, Did you see Inside Lewin Davis? No. I never it's did. The Cohen oh. Brothers. And, oh, and that, that yeah. is the, the takeoff on, you know, mm-hmm. the Dave Van Ronk sort of Dylan era in mm-hmm. Greenwich Village and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, but it's a I strange that, story. Yeah. I yeah. love it to death. But it's a strange story that involves that. a cat. A oh, and, okay. and if you see that movie and you could figure yeah. out what yeah. that movie's about, would you please let me know? Yeah. Okay. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I love it. Yeah. You know, the cat gets away. Yeah. Yeah. And I won't ruin it for you because yeah. I think you. I think yeah. you'll appreciate it. So the Morrison Hotel cover. That is. Okay. I, oh, you know, I was. I started out by telling you that that Gary was an architect. Yes. So when he made album covers, as architects do, they want to incorporate new materials or new ideas. So when we went to print that Crosby, Sills, Nash first album on the couch, he told the printers at the printing company, I want you to turn the paper over and print it on the uncoated side. Now up to then, all album covers are glossy. They have a glossy finish to them. He said, no, I want to print on the uncoated, the matte side of the paper. And they said, well... We, we've never done that, you know. I mean, it'll soak up the ink. He said, I don't care, do it. He d- and he had the group behind him, do what he says. And and it, so when you hold that first original cover that folds out, it's got to feel a texture to it. It's organic. You feel the roughness of the paper, not a slick, glossy, plasticky thing. Yep, yep. And so that, that was a great, you know, yeah, innovation. It's that, a fine. That, that, yeah. Through experimentation, right? That's right. Yep. That's what I was leading up to about Gary... Gary Burden, but now, so the Doors apparently saw that album and called us, you know, within a week or two, and and, and called Gary. He was the art director, as they called him, and say, "We want you to do our cover." So we went to meet with them at their little office, and it was just Jim and Ray Manzarek and Gary and I, and we said, "Okay, uh, great. You uh, you got a title?" <laughs> they said, "Well, no." Well, do you have an idea? What kind of? What do you want on the cover? What's the, What's it about? What do you? No, we don't know. That's why we called you. And we're going well. Uh, you know, Ray Manzarek randomly speaks up at that point and just says, "You know, my wife Dorothy and I were driving through downtown LA the other day, and we saw this old funky hotel. It said Morrison Hotel on the window." And <laughs> Gary and I both went, "Wow." That sounds great. And we went down that same afternoon. We got in their Volkswagen van and drove down. There it was. It was great. We took a picture of Jim behind the window sitting there. So then we went back a week later with the whole group. And we got out of our car. It was the band's uh, Volkswagen van. We all fit in there. We walked in, and they walked into the lobby. It was empty. You know, some old second-hand furniture, you know. And, and a guy, young guy behind the desk, I, I was... 
walking in last, I just said, yeah, we're just going to be over there for a few minutes taking a few shots, you know. There was nobody to bother, you know. And he got very animated. Oh, no, no, you can't take any pictures in here. You've got to get the owner's permission. <laughs> well, where is he? Well, he's not here, you know. It, apparently, in, in retrospect, it turns out he was a famous slumlord. who was very, very hard to deal with. And that guy was in fear of his life if we took a picture in there. So I walked up to the doors and I said, hey, you guys, the guy's not going to let us shoot in here. Let's walk out on the sidewalk. And I'm thinking, they can't stop us on the sidewalk. We'll take it in front of the window, right? right? To tell you the truth, I don't know what picture I would have taken in the lobby because, you know, it's so, we all marched outside, and we stood in front of that big window that said Morrison Hotel, and they're just about to stand with their backs to that window, and I looked in, and I saw a light go on in the back of the lobby, a big light, and I, I looked through the window, and I said, oh, that's the elevator light. The guy left the desk, so quick, run in there. And by golly, they ran in and just hit those marks, you know, we didn't have to say, you know, you move to the left, you, but they just bang, right there. And I backed up, and I, I took, well, first I took a few shots close up, and then Gary Burden said, back up, Henry, back up. Get the whole window. You know? There he is again. And there he is again. So I did that. Five minutes, we were out of there. Really? Yeah. And then Jim said, well, let's go get a drink. We're in downtown L.A. We went a few blocks to Skid Row. Well, we're driving along looking for, trying to pick a bar. They're all bars and pawn shops. And... Out, the, out the, the front window on the next corner, somebody said, look, Hard Rock Cafe. No one ever heard of that before. And so we'll get our beers in there. We went in, we spent, you know, an hour or two. I don't know how long it was, but Jim liked to buy beers for some of the old winos in there because he liked to hear them tell their stories. Jim was a, a very kind of quiet, internal, like a poetic guy, you know. Uh, and so he, he, he wasn't uh, outgoing. He didn't talk a lot, but he liked to listen. He liked to hear people and mull it over in his mind. These guys were saying, yeah, you know, left home at 16 and joined the Merchant Marines. And, uh, you know, his, he'd go, mm-hmm, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then we put that, a picture of that Hard Rock Cafe on the back of the doors, Morrison Hotel, and they got a call from England as soon as that record came out, and a voice said, would you mind if we use that name? We're starting a cafe here in London. And they said, no, go ahead. So that was... That, and now, years later, I have a... a, a I'm part owner of, a, of a, a chain of galleries called Morrison Hotel Galleries, in which you can buy my photos and 125 other photographers' photos. Um, and so that one day, we got the name of our business and the name of the Hard Rock Cafe, which... <laughs> All in that afternoon. Uh, well, the, you know, I, I need to go back and consult my, my horoscope for that day, right? right. That was something, a productive day. Something was conjunct something, I'm sure. You know? Wow. Now, how did the uh, opportunity for you come to be the photographer of record for uh, Woodstock and for mm. Monterey? You know... Both, I always say phone call <laughs> starts out. I, but with the, with Monterey Pop, I think it was just, you know, John Phillips from the Moms and Pop is a good friend of mine, is a fellow folk singer. Long, you know, long before I picked up a camera, I saw him somewhere and he said, hey, Henry, we're going to do this big festival up in Monterey. You want to take pictures for me? I said, yeah. And that was that. Second one, Woodstock, the phone rang and it was a fellow named Chip Monk. Edward Beresford Monk. Of course, his nickname was Chip. Yep. So Chip Monk. And I had seen him, well, at Monterey. He was a lighting director there. And, and then a lot of the folk tours that we did, he was there doing the, doing the sound and lighting, staging, all that. So he called me. He said, Henry, he said, I'm out in New York. We're going to have a big music festival out here in a couple of weeks. You ought to be here. I said, well, Chip, I've read about it, but I, I don't know those guys. You know, how am I going to... He said, look, I'll talk to the producer. And the next day, Michael Lang called me, right? And a man of few words. He said, Chip says we need you. I'm sending you an airline ticket and $500. I said, okay, I'll call out. And I got there a couple of weeks before, I think almost three weeks before the festival. They, they had changed locations. 
the original township had voted them out. You know, they didn't want all those damn hippies all over their lawn. So then they found Yasker's farm. And they were just starting to build that great big wooden deck at the bottom of that, that natural amphitheater, which was growing with um, alfalfa, you know? Yep. Beautiful green field. And my job was just to hang out all day and, and document what was going on, waiting for the festival to start. But in those couple of weeks, it was like being at summer camp. I went to summer camp in upstate New York, you know, as a boy. And this was like that. Of course, I, I didn't have anybody to answer to. I just walked around doing the thing I loved doing and couldn't stop doing anyway, you know. Right. I mean, go to the hog farm, which was the, the, peep, the hog farm from New Mexico, came up and built the campsites and helped with security. I'd go over there and hang out and talk, maybe smoke a joint, watch the girls chopping up cabbage to make coleslaw, you know, someone erecting a teepee, I'd photograph that. And back to the stage where there was this big wooden deck, like an aircraft carrier, and all these hippie carpenters with their shirts off, all brown, sawing and hammering, you know. And the girls would come over at lunchtime and bring drinks and lunch, and I'm just there having a time of my life, you know. And it, and it was like an aircraft carrier in a sea of alfalfa, because that's what was—that's all we saw, you know, yep. blowing in the wind. And then after a couple of weeks, one day, I was there, and, and I looked up, and at the top of that hill was a few people sitting there. And I thought, what, what the hell are they doing? We're, you know, we're out in the country here. What are they doing there? What are they looking at? And I thought, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot, you know. And then the next day there was, you know, a thousand people. And then the next day there were 400,000 people. It just happened bang, bang, bang. And I, I was living in a rooming house down a dirt road that ran behind the stage about a mile. But I, and I had my, my rent-a-station wagon parked behind the stage. That day when 400,000 people got there, I couldn't get home. I couldn't drive down that road. His cars were parked on either side of the dirt road, not leaving space for a car in the middle. And even that space was full of bodies walking. It was, you know, like <laughs> at the subway in New York City or something, suddenly on this little country road. So I had to sleep in my station wagon backstage for a few days. And I just basically, I mostly stayed up on the stage. That was my job, you know, document all the acts, you know. And What was it like shooting photos of Jimi Hendrix? Well, you know, he didn't play until Monday morning. He was supposed to close the show Sunday night, but it was so backed up that he didn't start till Monday morning and uh, came out right at dawn wearing these colorful bandanas on their heads and it was like, whoa, we'd all been up for hours, you know. I, I was, I got a couple hours sleep in my station wagon before I heard, ladies and gentlemen, Jimi Hendrix, you know, it was Chipmunk up on stage, yep, you know. Yep. <laughs> And I said, I grabbed my cameras and ran up there, and I'm standing right at the edge, on stage. I had the big all-access pass. I could go anywhere. Yep. All the other photographers were down in the pit in yep. front of the stage, but I was, like, on stage yep. with Jimmy. And it, it was great, you know. And then, but the, the moment, the quintessential moment, was when he started playing the Star Spangled Banner. Because, I mean, here we were, an army of peace and love hippies. Uh, many of whom were susceptible to the draft, but hell no, I'm not going to go over there and shoot strangers. And for what? You know, we were peace and love, brotherhood. We were talking about angels, you know, and, and gurus and Indian medicine men and the good things in life, you know? And so suddenly he started playing that song, and I know my first reaction was, wait a minute, you know, that's their song. That's the official country, you know. That's the president and the army and the whole, you know, rah, rah, put up the flag. That's the opposite of where we're at. But then, as he played and all those, you know, the sounds of war, boom, you know, he's making all the sounds that went with that song. And I kind of thought, wait a minute, he's reclaiming it for us, you know. Yeah. Because we were like, Looking at that 400, 450,000 people filling that whole basin, you know, was and up to the top of the hill, it was like like probably what the Sioux Indians felt like, you know, when they all got together and got rid of Custer. But, I mean, thousands of them, but they'd never been that many together, you know. And the same for us, you know. And these were all peace and love hippies passing a joint, you know, shirts off, dancing, having a good... I mean, there were no fights. Right. There was no negativity. Yep. 
because everybody was happy, you yeah, know? Yeah. That was Michael Lang's original idea. Three days of peace and music, you yeah. know? Yeah. And by golly, he pulled it off. So Jimmy played that song, and then, and then I thought, wow, yeah, he's reclaiming it. So I never got a chance to ask him about it. But I talked to his conga player a few years ago. On the 50th anniversary, I was, on, you know, doing a talk with him. He said, yeah, we were in a rooming house near there for a couple of weeks before the concert, and he practiced that song every day, the Star Spangled Banner. So it wasn't just a sing off the top of his head. He had a reason. He was a paratrooper. And, you know, in later years, I have come to realize that the brilliance of that, that whole thing, because when Francis Scott Key wrote that song, he was up on a hillside looking over Fort McHenry, and the British fleet in the bay bombarding Fort McHenry. Phew, boom, boom, you know, all that was going on, shooting their cannons. Yep. And the flag was still waving, you know. So he was recreating that whole thing, that whole ambiance, you know. That was brilliant. Wow. Well, Henry, I got one last question for you. I was thinking about this one, um, and we could go on forever taking this walk but I was thinking you know we all have dreams that uh, you know come out of nowhere in our 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 sleep patterns right so do you ever have these dreams where you flash back to this moment with one of these you know iconic figures and they're in the dream in a different form has that ever happened it has happened to me yeah I'm, I'm a big you know a big aficionado of dreams and you know what's happening really on the other side and all but but um, yeah it's funny I have had like one dream of the Eagles one dream of the doors one dream of Stephen Stills I can I have one a year kind of and I and it's never a replay of something that happened. It's always something else, you know. I yeah. mean, we're, we're on the road somewhere and something's happening. They're there. I see them. Generally, my dreams are all people I don't know, you know. There used to be dreams where I was late getting to the, uh, the train station. I had to, all my friends were at the station waiting for the train, and I had to get home and pack to get there, you know. Really, you know, what do they call those kind of dreams, uh, you know, uh, uptight dreams. Yeah, yeah. But then I do, I have dreams where there's lots of people around and I'm really good friend. I'm right there with everybody, but I don't know who they are. They're nobody that I know. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, you know, some of it might be in your brain. Some of it, you might leave your body and go to a place with a That's bunch right. of people. Right. So I don't know, but yeah, I, I have had, I know I had a Doors dream once. I can remember that I did, but it doesn't recur. Yeah just one time and I don't even know why oh my god <laughs> yeah well you have uh, left an indelible mark on me today but on a uh, multitude of generations here with your amazing work uh, your uh, uh, thoughtful eye uh, the way you made everybody that you were uh, photographing comfortable uh, and yeah. the way you have sort of captured all of that is just yeah. a part of our life and I really you know, thank you. It's just the byproduct of my own adventure. Like I said before, I mean, people used to say, oh, oh, you're a photographer, are you a professional? And I, without thinking, I always say, no, you know, no. I mean, I don't have a gallery, I don't have assistants, I don't have lights, I don't, I'm just a guy who likes to look at things and, and take a picture of them. And you know, then, you know, I took a course in existentialism, you know, which is the, the, the moment. I mean, the past is past. The future is a dream or a hope or a plan. But the only thing that's real is the moment that we're in right now. And it kind of then bothered me that I was known for all these past moments. And then somebody said to me, yeah, but you bring the past moments into the present. And I said, oh, okay. There you go. I can live with that, you know. <laughs> I can live with that. And it, but it is... Uh, the older you get and the longer ago you took those pictures, it, it gets more and more surreal, you know. I read the gurus. I read the Indian gurus. Yogananda, Swami Satchidananda, I mean, the Dalai Lama. I love books like that. Books, um, books that are spoken through people, you know, from the other side, from archangels and from masters on the other side. They, they speak to somebody and they, they like dictate a book. I really love all that stuff, you know. Some guru, you know, said, hey, 
when you leave, when you die, which, you know, which I don't like to use that word because nobody does die, you know. You buy, you drop your body, but your spirit lives on, and you do go to the other side. And they said, it's no big deal. You walk into the next room. That's, you know, that's it. And so I glibly tell that to everybody, and I, and I believe it. I mean, I'm, I'll be happy to get there. See, you know, I've, I've read a lot about it. People die on the operating table, and they come back, and they say, wow, I can't describe the music. I can't describe. They're, they're there for a couple of minutes. Sometimes they say, I saw God, and he said, you have to go back. One lady said, I was running over a meadow, but my feet weren't touching the ground. And then somebody said, this is not your time. You have to go back. And you just want to be there, you know. And then recently, a dear, a dear lady friend of mine for 20 years uh, transitioned out of the physical, you know, left her body. And I, it was only a, a couple of weeks ago, and, and I suddenly said, wow. It's one thing to say, no big deal, you know, you're just walking. But when it's somebody who's a big part of your life and they're gone, there's a big hole left there. You know, their energy is just gone. That's, that's, so I'm, I'm, I'm working with that now. And, but as my spiritual teacher used to tell me, isn't it great? Isn't it great that we can deal with these things, you know, and, and learn from these things? You know, one of my favorite uh, gurus, Swami Satchidananda, <clears throat> he said, of course we're all here to learn. We know that. So therefore, we're all students. But you should think of yourself as the only student, and everybody you meet is your teacher. Now that will change the valence of the day, you yes, know what I mean? Yes. Instead of, you know, I mean, if somebody yells at you and yell back, you yell back, I mean, that's a waste. Instead, you know, you say, thank you for yep. telling me that, you know, yep. you're teaching me. Yep. Maybe they're just teaching you to deal with, <laughs> with that kind of a person, you know, yep. but, but everybody can teach something. That's right, peace and love. I'm just an old hippie, you know, I really believe in it. Well, Henry Diltz, it's an honor to meet you, and I'm so grateful that you took a walk with me. Thank you for everything. Sure thing, Buzz. My pleasure. This is great. Now we gotta, we got to walk 10 miles back. <laughs> Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.